Welcome to the Lost at Home podcast. Here are your hosts, Scott Bear and Jeremiah Johnson. Welcome to the Lost at Home podcast. My name is Scott. I'm Jeremiah. And we are back for a very special episode. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's special in this bittersweet kind of way. I wouldn't even say anything sweet about it. It's just bitter. Uh, we, uh, A lot of folks may have noticed the absence of us uh, giving an in-memoriam to somebody very special to our show and special to the horror community, Mr. Larry Cohen, who passed away. Uh, it was actually the night before we recorded our last episode, but we were not aware of it when we recorded that. Otherwise, we would have given him a shout-out. He was uh, kind enough to... Uh, be uh, on our show. We had absolutely no right speaking to this horror master. He wanted but to speak to us. The, the which good was thing amazing. is, the, the great thing is, and we have uh, Lorraine Landon, uh, who uh, we uh, interviewed uh, the episode right before that, um, and actually back to back to thank uh, for for that interview, uh, especially. Um, so a big shout out to her, and also you know uh, uh, many uh, many uh, thanks to Larry Cohen posthumously for being on the show, and um, we are going to actually air that as a special episode this week. Pull one from the vaults. Uh, Lost at Home Classics. This is from episode 108, which is funny. I it felt like it was like a year ago we interviewed him. Yeah, it, no, three I years now, too, almost almost back. like to the. I mean, it's with uh, within about a month or a few weeks. It was three years ago. It was 26 March of 2016 when we uh, interviewed yeah. him, or at least that when we aired it. Anyway, it was a great interview. Yeah. Uh, a lot of great moments within it. And uh, well, I'm not going to spoil those. You're exactly. About to hear yeah, I them, actually but... was about to like shout him out, but I'm like, no, you're about to hear it. Yeah. So we're just going to go ahead and play that. We'll be back next week with a standard episode. episode Episode 257, but we wanted to, uh, you know, give uh, many props to an absolute horror master that, uh, you know, we lost unexpectedly. Um, he gave us a lot of great years and great horror movies. I would uh, definitely recommend uh, going to Shudder. I think even in this interview, we were talking about his documentary, King Cohen, that was yet to be released at the time. It took a while to get out of uh, production limbo, and he wasn't even sure if it was ever going to come out, but turns out it did, and uh, you can actually catch that on Shudder, which is a, it's a Shudder exclusive. You can also rent it elsewhere as well, but I would definitely recommend checking it out on Shudder. They also have some of his other great movies uh, that we discuss in this as well. I've recently uh, rewatched uh, Cue the Wings serpent forgot how amazing that movie is michael moriarty who we talk about in this uh interview as well was awesome in that and everything that he's done with larry cohen but uh yeah without further ado uh check this episode out from ages ago with larry cohen episode 108 welcome to the show larry cohen how are you doing today i'm doing fine today thank you for asking me to be on your show and thank you for being gracious enough to uh take your time to be on our show we are both big fans and this is actually quite the treat to sit down and talk with you today well, it's quite a treat to be me today. <laughs> uh, we we had already talked to uh, uh, Lorraine, who of course you know, uh, last week, and uh, we got a little bit of uh, you know backstory of some of the stuff we're going to ask you today. But uh, one thing we didn't bother asking, and something that maybe some of our listeners would like to know, is kind of a general overview of how you got into the film industry, kind of your orange or origin story, if you will. My origin story is that I loved movies. That's it. I mean, every minute as a child, I could go to the movies, I would be there. And I would sit through the movies twice, three times, till the manager threw me out of the theater. Say, hey, you've got to go home now. Did it, did, it matter, did it matter what movie? Just any kind of movie you could get your hands on and, and digest at the time? Well, you know, when, uh, when I was a kid, the movies changed twice a week at the local theater. And uh, the movies were only there for five days. Movies would open on a Wednesday, and they would play through Sunday, and then they'd be gone. And then the next Monday and Tuesday would be uh, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry or Frankenstein or Sherlock Holmes or, you know, what they call the uh, Monday and Tuesday movies, the B movies. Mm -hmm. But the A-class a movies, they only played uh, five days. So if you wanted to see them, you had to go. And it was, it was like television today, you know, they, everything changed every week. So every studio was putting out 50, 60 movies a year in those days. And there was about seven studios. So there's a lot of movies were coming out. Mm -hmm. And they were double features. And uh, so, you know, you'd see a lot of pictures. And I, I got hooked on movies very early. And I started studying them and seeing how they were put together. And uh, so, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do. Do you recall like a single one you saw that really kind of just pushed you over the edge where it said, wow, I can't believe this is being made. I want to do that. Uh, or was it just kind of the culmination of all of them that kind of pushed you into it? 
Well, I loved them all, but I remember Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one, yeah. made a big impression on me. It was uh, the second half of a double feature, believe it or not, when it played. It wasn't even the main feature, it was the second feature. But, oh, wow, uh, and yeah, and today it's such a classic. Yeah. I know, and a lot of movies like that were uh, kind of uh, dismissed at the time they came out. The Night of the Hunter was a particularly great movie, and uh, it, it was so badly received when it came out that they pulled the picture out of the theater. It opened on a Wednesday. I think they pulled it out on Friday and put in a, another movie for the weekend because uh, the audience didn't seem to like The Night of the Hunter for some reason. Mm. But uh, it turned out to be uh, an enduring classic. So, you know, you can't always tell what's a great movie when it first plays. It takes years to find out what's a A movie and what's a B movie. It's true. That's even true of today. There's a lot of movies that hit theaters and maybe don't have that, that moment where they become a blockbuster, but then, you know, shortly later become cult classics. Yeah. Uh, well, even even I, today, they're I, being I, generated I, all the time. You know, I wrote the uh, screenplay for The Return of the Magnificent Seven with Yul Brynner, the sequel to The Magnificent Seven. Uh, but people don't remember that The Magnificent Seven was a flop. It opened in in New York City, not on uh, Manhattan, and one of the nice downtown luxury movie palaces. But it opened at the Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Paramount Theater, I think, and uh, it didn't even play Manhattan. And then it played in New York City uh, on a double feature for about five days, and was gone. And uh, it didn't even get good reviews. It was badly reviewed because of its similarity to the uh, Kurosawa film, The Seven Samurai. And the critics took it to task as being inferior to the Seven Samurai and how dare they uh, take a Japanese classic and make an American movie out of it. And, and so the picture was not well received. And it took years of playing on television and the fact that the cast members all became stars. James Coburn became a star. Uh, and, you know, uh, 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 McQueen, of course, became a huge star. Uh, Charlie Bronson became a big star. And and suddenly the picture had a panache to it, and uh, you know, and and it became a classic, but only because it played on television. Yeah, and I wasn't actually aware that it wasn't uh, uh, widely like well received because I've only known it as the classic that it is, which is actually a, it's on the it, I think it's in the top ten of the AFI top one hundred films of all time. Yeah, it's, when it's we it, it was one of the most popular films on television, and then when I did the sequel. Uh, the producer, Walter Mears, said, well, of course, we can't use the music because uh, Elmer Bernstein's music for The Magnificent Seven has been used as a television commercial for Chevrolet, I believe. And uh, I said, well, if you're not going to use the music, don't make the picture because there's no Magnificent Seven without that music. And he listened to me, and they did use the music. Oh. And oddly enough, uh, Elmer Bernstein's score for my version actually got an Oscar nomination whereas it was never nominated for the original picture. Oh, wow. But right, because it, it wasn't quite the, the, the uh, magnificent movie that it was at that time. So. Yeah, right, and, and uh, it was pretty well ignored uh, musically, and then all of a sudden the exact same music was nominated for an Oscar <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the sequel. That's very so interesting. there you are. I mean, that's what happens. And you can't make a judgment about anything in Hollywood until years go by and you find out what happens to pictures. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, some of your movies actually, uh, and I'm specifically thinking of some of the ones that Scott and I have, you know, grew up on. Uh, we're both big horror fans, so we're thinking of like some of your '70s and '80s films that uh, uh, you know have become cult classics, uh, you know, since. Um, now, in, in the terms of the horror genre in general, how did you choose to move from the types of films you were doing before uh, to these this genre? Well. I didn't only do horror films. I, I did uh, uh, gangster movies. Right, yeah. I did a couple of comedies. I did um, a movie biography of J. Edgar Hoover. I, you know, I've done thrillers, uh, more more suspense and thriller movies than anything. I was going to say that a lot of horror, yeah. a lot of horror, <laughs> suspense, thriller. I mean, to us, that genre, they, they all blend into each other, and we're fans of anything that fits within those categories. Yeah, and, and I also want to uh, recorrect myself from a correction that uh, Laureen also made when we were talking about this in our interview with her, is that uh, she specifically mentioned that you were more of a... A suspense director than uh, what you would call a, a traditional horror director, and I specifically cited um, Alfred Hitchcock uh, as you know that same type of beast. And she mentioned that you actually um, kind of uh, you you have a uh, an appreciation for Hitchcock uh, to say the least. 
Yeah, well, I knew him too. Yeah, and spent some time with him, and I had some very nice uh, get-togethers with him. And any time you hung out with Hitchcock, it was always three and a half hours. <laughs> if you had lunch with him or just a meeting, it was three and a half hours. That'd he, be okay. He if loved I could... to talk. He loved to chat and uh, tell you things and discuss ideas that it, movies he'd never made and ideas for scenes that he'd never used. And he just liked he just liked to hang around and talk. So uh, I, I enjoyed the sessions with him. I feel like I would have been stealing some of those ideas he never used to to use as my own. Be like, well, even if they're something Hitchcock never used, maybe I could take it. Well, take a we whack talked out. about doing it. We talked about doing a movie in a telephone booth, and it oh. never came about. But <laughs> we did speak about it, and then later on, years later, I figured out how to do it. Uh, I, I never could figure out how to make a movie in a phone booth, although that's something Hitch wanted to do, and. Uh, by the time I figured out how to do it, he was no longer with us, but uh, it always was in the back of my mind. That was actually one of your, uh, it was a very commercially successful movie, uh, oddly enough named Phone Booth, I'm sure you're referring to. Um, and that one seems like quite a challenge to actually go from, uh, you know, having, because uh, I remember when I watched it, I was wondering how can you make a phone booth interesting for 90 plus minutes, and you managed to do it. So it seems like that's something that, would be almost like Hitchcock or you, in this case, uh, would challenge themselves to, to do. How do you make something interesting for 90 minutes in this tiny little box? Well, Hitch had done a movie where a bunch of guy, people were in a lifeboat and in a very enclosed uh, kind of environment. And, and since we did uh, Phone Booth, then a lot of other people have jumped in and done kind of uh, uh, in pictures that were inspired by Phone Booth. There was one picture where Jody Foster was in a uh, a room, uh, a safe house room, mm -hmm. and there were she was trapped in there with her daughter. And uh, there was another picture where a guy was buried alive for the whole movie all by himself. Uh, there had been, and there's a, a movie coming out with John Goodman in next week where they're all in a bomb shelter for the whole movie. Locked oh, in a basement oh, yeah, like field movie. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, that's coming out. And uh, I mean, there's been a, a pr pretty close to half a dozen more movies that all were, uh, were kind of, I guess, inspired by the phone booth idea. Um, speaking of uh, movies inspired by other movies, uh, one of my personal favorites, uh, I watched this movie for the first time when I was a teenager, uh, Body Snatchers. Uh, definitely <laughs> inspired, to say the least, from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, I, I just want to commend you personally for that movie. I, I love it. You mean the one where they were in the army base? Yep. Yeah, well, that was that was all my idea. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of other writers came on after me, but the basic concept of putting uh, the uh, pod people on a military base was uh, was an inspiration, I believe, because you could, you can't tell the regular military people from the pod people. Yeah, that's actually a really good concept. Yeah, because they uh, they have to act a certain way and be you know conformed, and the pod people also acted a very specific way and conformed. So yeah, right. Uh, it was uh, one of my favorites, and I still to this day watch it every couple years just to like reinvigorate my my horror senses, if you will. And that actually, uh, I mean, I was gonna also bring up that kind of goes to the kind of a general theme, I don't even want to call it a theme, is just kind of a, a feel that you have in all your movies is you inject a lot of social commentary uh, into them, so they're not just like a, uh, they're definitely entertaining um, that's, that's for sure, and I spoke once again with Lorraine about uh, the stuff in, in particular in a lot of your other movies where there'll be uh, it'll be very entertaining on one level and then I saw it again later in life, uh, just about six months ago, uh, and I got a totally new uh, sense out of it because of the social commentary um, do you find yourself like intentionally injecting, like finding a a, a, a specific thing that's around you in culture or social uh, social commentary that you want to uh, talk about when you write, go out to write a movie, or do you write an idea and just social commentary happens to get injected when you're writing? Oh no! When I first started out writing in television, I was writing for a series called The Defenders, which was the Emmy Award-winning show at the time. It was on for about four or five years and won the Emmy every year. It was all about social issues. And in courtroom dramas, and Reginald Rose was the creator of the show, who originally wrote Twelve Angry Men, the famous uh, motion picture. And uh, uh, every show I wrote had a social commentary in it. 
And then when I went on to do my own TV series, I did uh, uh, Branded, which is really, uh, I, I conceived it as a, a show about the blacklist, about a blacklisted cowboy, you know, someone whose reputation had been ruined, like people's uh, reputations had been destroyed during the blacklist period in, in America, and had to live down that uh, stain on their name. And that's what Branded was all about. And The Invaders was really a takeoff on the witch hunting for communists when uh, there was a whole period when everyone was fixated that communists were hiding everywhere and that uh, people you knew might really be communists. And uh, so that's really what the takeoff was on uh, on The Invaders. It was a series about aliens posing as normal people and one man trying to expose them. And... Uh, the ridiculousness of it, of course, was uh, a parallel on the uh, on the witch hunting. Now, um, from your own catalog of movies and TV, and this is uh, quite the the large catalog. Um, do you have a personal favorite of your work? <laughs> well, it's like asking if you're which one of your children is your favorite. You, know? you, you, you always have one, but you always say you're all my favorites. So right. we're, we're asking which kid is what really your you favorite. Do? I mean, you, you, it's not only the pictures themselves, it's the experience you had making the picture. Some movies which were not as good as others were pictures that I had a really good time on, that I had wonderful relationships with people, that I met people that I fell in love with. Uh, you know, I, I look back at all these things and everything has its pluses. And not too many minuses. I remember they were all a lot of hard work and many hours because we usually shot uh, for shot for 14, 15, 16 hours a day. And uh, but uh, everybody was with me on the pictures. They were all supportive. Everybody stuck with me, even though the hours were terrible. And most of them came back for the next picture too. As much as people complained about the working conditions. They were always there for the next film, and they wanted to work with me because they could see somebody doing creative work, not just uh, shooting stuff in a matter-of-fact manner or a traditional manner, but really coming up with new things on the set every day. And uh, people used to come to the set to shoot uh, who were actors who were not on the schedule. Uh, they weren't supposed to work that day, and I'd see them on the set, and I'd say, what are you doing here? You, you, you weren't on the call sheet to come to work today. And they'd say, oh, we just wanted to see what was going on. And that was the most That's great. complimentary thing I could hear because here were people who didn't have to come there and they came because they were so interested in what was happening. They didn't want to miss out on anything. Well, it proves so, that it wasn't, it, it didn't feel like work to them because otherwise, you know, it was something a labor feels of like love. work, you don't go to work to hang around the office unless you really love what's going on. You kind of, you're, you're passionate about everything yeah. else and what other people are involved in. And it's funny you mentioned uh, uh, the relationships you have with, uh, you know, people, uh, going forward and, um, you know, creating these relationships, because I have noticed you've worked, you know, the same people uh, tend to pop up here and there in your movies. Of course, Laureen is one of them. We spoke to her. Uh, but another one is Michael Moriarty, who tends to show up quite a bit. Um, is that, uh, are, you, are you friends with Michael, or is just uh, an absolute appreciation for uh, what he does for the craft? Uh, how did that relationship uh, evolve? Well, I didn't know Michael before, but we certainly are friends now. Yeah. because we made five movies together. So, I mean, uh, a lot of things happen when you've made some of the f finest work uh, uh, that you've done, uh, my work and his work. I think he thinks that his best performances were uh, made in my movies, and I, I tend to agree. I, I do but, I do as well. I love his, his all of his work. I mean, I'm a huge fan of his, but his stuff in your movies. Now, movie Michael is. was a big star on television. Uh, he was the original star of Law & Order for the first three years it was on on NBC, and uh, then he walked off the show after he had a dispute with the producers, and, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to make all these movies with him, but he had a reputation in the business of being extremely difficult to get along with, and that's, that's the kind of actor I always like. If I hear about somebody is a, is a difficult actor and, a, and trouble, that's my kind of actor because they always ask a lot of questions and uh, 
Uh, if an actor is any good, he's going to ask a lot of questions, and I can answer them. So I'm not threatened by them. I kind of enjoy it, the fact that they're interested enough to ask questions. And once we get past that uh, and they see me rewriting scenes and uh, adding stuff for them and putting new pieces of business in for them to do, well, I'm more or less only actor after that. They just... They just love me, and I love them too. It's a it's a mutual admiration society, and and uh, we work in picture after picture. They're always coming, want to come back again, and uh, that's uh, one of the most complimentary things that I've seen critics write about me in my films is that the actors in the cast always seem like they're having a good time, and. Uh, they are. They are having a good time. That's, that's important. It really comes out on screen, actually, when you when you Absolutely. see the movies. You can you can sense that when somebody's just saying the words because they're on the page. They're gonna you know walk off, get their paycheck, leave, you know, eat their food, whatever. And then the people who you know come to set and actually enjoy seeing what other people are doing and want to see the movie out to the end. So you yeah, can definitely well, that's, sense that's what I. That's the kind of atmosphere I like to create, and uh, uh, it's, it's good for me. And it's good for the picture. I always think primarily of the finished product. Yeah, you can tell by watching the finished product of you know pretty much every movie you've made uh, that you surround yourself with people who definitely enjoy what they're doing. Um, I rewatched this stuff this past weekend, and the special effects I gotta say blew me away. I, I forgot just how good they are. Um, I had heard a rumor that one of the scenes actually reused a prop from Nightmare on Elm Street, the uh, the rotating room, was it? Well, we didn't use the same prop. We used the same people who uh, engineered the original scene from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street where the room turned upside down yeah, okay. in order for the blood to come pouring out of the mattress. Uh, and I, after seeing that, I contacted these people and they they said they still had the mechanism but oh. they didn't have the room they'd have to rebuild the room but they did have the mechanism that would swivel and turn the room upside down this had been done years before in a Fred Astaire movie where Fred Astaire danced on the ceiling of that's the room. Right. Oh, yep. That's right. Exact same thing. Except when they did it, I'm sure they had a motorized room that could turn over. But when these guys did it, they didn't tell me that the room was going to be flipped by a bunch of people jumping up and down on the side of the damn thing <laughs> and using their weight to, oh. to turn the thing like a, some kind of an amusement park ride. <laughs> wow. And, it, and, uh, and then it flipped over. But the difference with ours is the room was on fire. When they did the thing in Nightmare on Elm Street and when Fred Astaire danced, the place was not on fire. So <laughs> yeah, you we had, had a much more, <laughs> much more horrendous, horrendous circumstance. I think these, uh, uh, if we'd photographed the actual process of shooting the scene, it was even better than what was on the screen in the movie because <laughs> it really was dangerous. Oh, wow. uh, turning, turning that room over on fire with people inside of it was really... Uh, that was really an achievement without anybody getting hurt. Oh, definitely. That's one of those standout effects that you can like go back to the 80s and be like, this movie, this movie, and this movie did these standout moments, and this stuff, definitely that's like a standout. It's like I've never well, the seen pro- that before. The thing is, the thing is, is good, really good about it is that we didn't really have a lot of money. And, uh, you know, sometimes pictures can be made and anything can be achieved if you have millions and millions of dollars to spend on the effects. But we didn't have that kind of money. We had to be ingenious and do the best we could, and um, and, and use uh, use ingenuity and creativity instead of just throwing the money around. Well, yeah, the the limitations. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, can be frustrating. I'm sure if you're making it. But some of the most ingenious pictures I can I can think about are the ones that have had to have been done under some limitation, some threshold that you know seems impossible to make, where it. It uh, doesn't even inspire creativity. It requires it to actually uh, to accomplish what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of the greatest movies were actually made on a, on a budget. Pictures like the original Godfather and uh, uh, Mean Streets and uh, Taxi Driver. These pictures were all made on, on tight budgets. And uh, as a matter of fact, as the Godfather uses a lot of the same stock footage that I used in my picture, Black Caesar. We all bought the same footage from MGM Film Library. So, uh, you know, they, that was made on a $6 million budget, and uh, there was a lot of movie to make with The Godfather. So, I mean, uh, you got to give them credit for not only making the picture, but also for making it as well as they did on such a tight schedule and tight budget. Yeah, when, they made the, when they made the sequels, of course, things were different. They had big money to spend then. 
Um, so, I, I mean, uh, moving forward, I mean, we were talking uh, about a phone booth earlier, and I kind of want to get back to some of these suspense films that you've done, these uh, mainstream thriller types. Um, I'm just curious, uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the, some of the comic book stuff uh, in, in just a little bit, but I'm actually curious in terms of film. Um, you haven't given up on film. You're still doing that. Uh, what's next in the realm of film? Are we going to see any more suspense films in your future? Are you looking to d- do different genres? I've been writing screenplays like crazy lately, and uh, i got a whole bunch of them. The hardest part of making a movie nowadays, and always probably, was getting the money to make the picture. Uh So, you know, that's what we're trying to do. Hopefully someone listening to this radio program will call me up and tell me they'd like to finance a movie for a couple of million dollars. Any millionaires out there, uh, send it over. You know, just call up and tell us you got the money and you're a producer immediately. <laughs> yeah, start with your producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start. <laughs> and I will anoint you as a producer immediately, yep. and you can go on to have a Larry Cohen film in your in your credits. That's and, not a uh, bad I'll thing. Get I... some very good actors, and we'll make the picture in no time at all because uh, we can do that. But it, uh, I just keep turning out these scripts. There's uh, many more scripts that I write that I can't direct them all anyway. So over the years, I've always sold off scripts as well for pictures that I didn't direct, like Phone Booth and Cellular and Bestseller and uh, By the Jury and, you know, uh, many, many movies that I'm credited writing. And inclu- I think I got about 45 movies uh, that I've written that got made, and I only directed 20. So there's another 25 movies that I wrote that I didn't direct. And uh, and most of them I wish I had because I always find some fault with them all. But uh, not the ones I directed. The ones I directed, I'm mostly pretty proud of. Yeah, there's always that feeling of like... uh, But there's also that thing where you have to kind of pass some of the uh, responsibility on and that delegation thing. But there is always that... Uh, yearning to kind of keep your baby to you because you know exactly what it looks like in your head. So it's got to take a little bit to relinquish some of your uh, creative uh, creative uh, products out to other people to allow them to do something with. It takes a lot, I think, actually, that a lot of people who don't make this stuff don't realize what it takes to relinquish some of that. So. Well, you know, you take their money and you sell your script, then you've got to let it go and just go on and write the next one and make the next picture. Mm-hmm. You can't dwell on what goes on because you can get very depressed so you just uh, take a shot and then you move on. Um, so yeah, when I, when I was a kid, when I was about nine years old, my hobby was writing comic books, and I used to make up my own comic books. And I used to do in those days, comic books were quite long; they were like sixty-four pages. So I would do sixty-four pages with about six panels on a page, and write them all by hand. And uh, that's what I did for pastime. And uh, instead of building model airplanes or something else like that, I I made my own comic books up, and uh, and they were pretty complicated and they were pretty adult, and uh, I don't have any of them around anymore. They've all been disappeared somewhere over the years, but I always wanted to get back into doing a comic book again. And now in recent times, I have developed a comic book character and and arranged to have it uh, uh, illustrated. Not by myself, but by a very competent and very professional comic book illustrator named Ron Randell, and uh, he did a wonderful job. And uh, so, you know, it's a, uh, I created the show along with Lorene Land, and, and it really is a prototype for a comic book that could become a feature motion picture and a series of motion pictures. Well, that's what I was curious about is, uh, is if you had larger goals for, uh, for, for this. And I believe we're talking about uh, Praying Mantis at this point um, yeah, that we've, uh, we've recently spoken to Laurie Landon about uh, as to whether or not you had larger uh, aspirations for uh, Praying Mantis to become something larger or if you were kind of just fine with the format well, of comic no, books. I believe that a good comic book like this is certainly a prototype for a feature movie. And uh, because I think our storyline is better than for most of these superhero pictures, and uh, and it can be a series of features, and maybe even eventually into a television series, so there's or a cable series. So there's lots of opportunities for this kind of thing. Years ago, uh, comic books just went nowhere as far as uh, uh, future development. They used to do 15 chapter serials for Saturday morning. 
and that was the end of it. That's where Batman and Superman ended up back in the old days. And for many years, uh, my friend Stan Lee was out here in Hollywood trying to sell some of the Marvel comic characters and having absolutely no luck at all. He was turned down everywhere. The only thing he ever got going was the thing with Roger Corman based on, I think, the Fantastic Four. Yep, the Fantastic And it was made into a really low-budget picture that was yeah. never released. Yeah. And uh, he was very disappointed with the... Uh, with the response, I actually wrote a screenplay on Doctor Strange, which is one of the Marvel characters, and that never got made. Uh, and as poor Stan just spent at least 10, 15 years out here trying to get something going. And it wasn't until much later, uh, when Stan was kind of an emeritus with the company and other people were running the company, that all of a sudden Spider-Man got made and took off, and suddenly all the Marvel characters were uh, in demand. And as you can see, there are Marvel <laughs> comic characters everywhere now in motion, the motion they're, picture they're business. Multiple a year, absolutely. And, they, uh, and some of it might have to do, too, with um, you know, it taking a little while for uh, you know, special effects in the industry to tr catch up to what can really be done with those superhero-style comics and everything like that. Um, but uh, you know, go, going into your comic, uh, from what we've understood, this is, uh, this is kind of a sophisticated story. It's uh, very uh, you know, character-driven. Um, it has uh, what is also kind of common in a lot of your movie themes, uh, a lot of social commentary. Um, now, was there uh, anything about the comic book form that drew you to this like, uh, in general? Um, what kind of like, transition was there between taking this from a, a, an idea like in your head that you thought when you would normally put on screen and translating it to a comic book format? Well, I mean, with comic book, the sky is the limit because, after all, anything you can imagine can be put down on paper. If you want to put uh, something uh, really spectacular on the movie, movie screen, you're looking at uh, $50, $100 million just yeah. for the effects, just to put that on the screen, not to mention the cost of the movie. So most of these comic book movies run into $200 million. But for a, uh, for a comic book, anything you want to make up can be put up on the page if you get a good illustrator, and uh, you, you can make up anything you want. The villain can be as bizarre a character as you want, and you don't have to worry about uh, the visual effects of creating that character. You just draw him. And, uh, and, uh, and if you don't like him, you can always tear him up. That's what, Walt <laughs> Disney, that's what Walt Disney said about his actors. He said, if I don't like an actor, I just tear him up. <laughs> so uh, that, that's what it is. That we, we, we went uh, for the sky's the limit stuff in this comic book. We have, we have a building collapsing and going into the river and submerging with everybody inside the building and uh, all kinds of spectacular things. We have a villain who's actually masquerading as a baby. So when, uh, when they rob the banks, the uh, robbers have him strapped to their chest, and nobody can shoot them because they've oh. got a baby strapped to their chest. They don't realize the ringleader of the gang is the baby. And he's got a gun. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wow. That's, that's really cool. We're really when looking forward to When the baby starts killing people, oh, you know, there's something that you would have a tough, tough time putting on the screen for, uh, unless you had a great deal of money. But we can do it in a comic book. And our hero, of course, is uh, a, a veteran from, uh, from the war over in Iraq who's lost his legs in an explosion. He's a chaplain and uh, a Catholic priest. And he comes back from the war and... He's assigned to a parish in Washington, D.C., which is a crime-ridden area where uh, nobody else wants the job. And uh, he's, he gets tired of praying because nothing good ever happens. So he decides to take the law into his own hands and fight the crime that permeates the city and in the guise of the praying mantis. So uh, he, with these super prosthetic legs that get designed, he is out there having a double identity. He's a, a priest by day, the praying mantis by night. We absolutely love this concept, I have yeah, to tell and you. you, you I, gave, you've given us a few more uh, uh, details about it than we got, even from uh, Laureen, so we're really looking forward to uh, actually taking a taking a read and a look at it. Well, that. Laureen deserves a lot of credit for coming up also with major, major contributions to this project. 
Well, this is great, and we both cannot wait to read this. We're definitely supporters of this project, and we will do everything within our power with our show, websites, and other social media platforms to uh, push this. We got a lot of comic loving, a lot of comic loving geeks listen to our podcast, so we're really, uh, really looking forward to getting this. Some, yeah, uh, well, some we're telling people if they want their, if they want souvenir copies of the of the uh, of the comic book, they can get it autographed by us, by Larry Cohen and Lorraine Landon on very fine glossy paper and the comic book uh will be sent to them and all i got to do is send this in uh, like fifty dollars to uh laureen landon dot biz laureen landon one word dot biz fifty bucks including postage we'll send it to you autographed and if you want it autographed specifically to you we'll just send send it how you want it autographed and it'll be a collector's item because if this thing takes off these will be the original comic book uh, prototypes and uh, you know some of these comic books go for hundreds of thousands of dollars in oh, years. absolutely my comic book collection which I had which my parents threw out when I went to camp one year would have been worth probably half a million dollars oh um, my god but they threw them all I had the first editions of Batman Superman all those characters oh. Captain Marvel everything and they threw them all out and uh, I, at the time I didn't know what a disaster that was but uh when I read about uh, these comic books going for five hundred and six hundred thousand dollars, I say, "Oh my God, it's more money than my father earned in five lifetimes." <sighs> From a comic book that cost like, yeah. a dime the comic originally. Books, they, threw them, they threw them in the incinerator. Oh, that's so that's sad. why they're so valuable because everybody threw them out. So there's so few of them left. That's what makes them so valuable. Well, we will make sure to put a link on our website, thelostknownpodcast.com, to uh, your site, uh, LorraineLandon.biz, uh, and anywhere else on the social media sphere, we will be pushing this. We want to help well, get you guys it's a beautiful much. comic book. It's beautifully illustrated. Ron Randell did a great job, and the colors are beautiful, and it's uh, it's just very, very good quality piece of material. I agree. And, it looks absolutely and, beautiful. Uh, you know, and it's, I say it's the birth of a new comic book hero. Well, that's great. And uh, we're going to end the interview here by asking you five questions that hopefully you've never been asked in an interview before. Um, it's going to be pretty rapid fire. These yeah. are kind of things that didn't quite make the cut for uh, uh, what we... They're, they're a little more tangential, uh, but they're just curiosities, little things we'd like to know uh, about you, uh, things like that. Um, sure. And uh, some, a couple of them we've actually, we actually asked uh, Laureen as well. And the first one is actually one we asked her. Uh, I'm curious what your answer is, is. Is there any actor, director, or any other player in the film industry that you wish you could work with that you haven't yet worked with? Well, of course, my, my favorite actors were the actors who are no longer with us. They were actors I watched growing up in movies uh, when I was a kid. I mean, I would have given anything to work with James Cagney. Uh, was my favorite. As a matter of fact, he he's my neighbor here. Of course, he's not alive anymore, but he lived right next door to my house. Uh, and um, he was seldom there during the last years when I was around, but uh, I, I never saw him, but I knew he lived there. And uh, so, my God, Jimmy, Jimmy Cagney, I, I loved Tim Bogart and Edward uh, G. Robinson. And, uh, I loved all those Warner Brothers actors. I would have loved to work in that era uh, uh, if I had had, a, had my druthers, I probably would have been happy to have been born earlier and worked in Hollywood during that golden age when you, when they had really great stars. You know, when you had Gary Cooper and Clark Gable and, uh, you know, uh, really fantastic actors who were so recognizable that if you heard their voice, you knew right away who they were. Uh, and they were so unique in their appearance and... Uh, uh, you know, the stars today are all like, to me, they're like understudies. The star couldn't make it, so they're in the picture instead. But uh, back in those days, every studio had great stars, whether it was Tyrone Power or, uh, uh, you know, whoever it was at, at the studio, Jimmy Stewart. I mean, these were, these were wonderful, wonderful actors who were so unique in their personality and their appearance. Today, everybody kind of looks the same. So... Uh, you know, and and you couldn't you couldn't tell that by their voices who they are today. Even the best of them, you know, even the best of them, like Johnny Depp, for example, mm -hmm. there you wouldn't know his voice if you just heard it. And, uh, you know, it's it, 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 these these people, and for some reason, actors were so unique back in the in the forties and the fifties. Even Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, you know, they were so unique in oh, there. Absolutely, yeah. 
Now, uh, oh. this actually is a nice way to roll into question number two. Um, I was looking through your IMDb and saw that you had a single acting credit yourself in the movie Spies Like Us. Um, well, I'm curious, how did that happen? How did you act once? Well, jo John Landis, who is the director of that picture, had a habit of asking other directors to come in and play walk-ons and, and one-line parts in his movies. So in that particular picture, he had the Coen brothers and a bunch of other directors, uh, John, uh, John Adler, I think. Uh, there was a lot of directors, I, and there was uh, and there was me, you know. I was just one of many, many directors who were in that particular film playing, uh, you know, one-line parts. I was a Secret Service agent. And, uh, you know, B.B. Uh, King was also in it with me. He was standing huh. next to me in the scene. He was supposed to be a fellow Secret Service agent. Not, not very likely, either of us, but uh, <laughs> that was, that's what we did. We had a nice time together. We only worked one day together and, uh, and, and had, had some fun. Are there any films that you've been a part of, uh, whether it's uh, writing or directing, um, that you wish you could have a second go at? Possibly in the form of a remake, or just going back in time and, and redoing it yourself. Well, I mean, uh, uh, some that I wrote that I was not a hundred percent happy with the result. I wish we could do over again. There was one called Bestseller in particular. It was very very well cast with Brian Dennehy and James Woods, but it was something that I really wrote for Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, and I never got the uh, first string stars that I wanted for the picture. But today it could be done again, and uh, and probably cast very well with two tough guy type actors. And uh, you know, I, I would have loved to have worked with somebody like Jack Nicholson, uh, uh, who I consider to be a real star. He's great. Uh, Jack Nicholson. I did write a script years ago that uh, Clint Eastwood optioned twice. Uh, once when he was at uh, Universal and once when he was at Warner Brothers and never made the picture. He wanted John Wayne to be in the film with him and it would have been probably the classic Western of all time with John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Oh my goodness. But for some reason, John Wayne didn't like this script and wouldn't do it. Maybe he just didn't want to do a picture with Clint Eastwood. Maybe he just didn't want to be uh, look looked like it. he was old, yeah. and Clint Eastwood was young, like the next but generation he, to the to the older. Yeah, movie. but he kept turning it down. We tried, we tried, we tried, and finally, uh, after Clint Eastwood's option ran out, uh, Michael Wayne called me up. He was John Wayne's son. And his producer, he said he'd like Dobson the script. I said, how can I give you the script? You guys have been killing the project for two years now. <laughs> and if I give it to you, Clint's going to go crazy. And he said, well, l l let me see if I can talk Dad into doing it. So he said, we're going out on the boat uh, at Newport, and he'll be sitting there with nothing to do. I'll get him to read it again. So uh, I said, call me and let me know what happened. Michael, I finally got him on the phone the following week. And he said, well, uh, Dad was sitting on the deck, and I gave him the script. And he looked at it for a couple of minutes, and then he said, this piece of shit again, and he threw it overboard. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So I could just see my beautiful screenplay sinking beneath just, the blue Pacific yeah, with all slowly. the dreams of Clint Eastwood and myself sinking along with it, and the picture never got made. Oh, so. that's... Uh, 35 years later, somebody bought it for the Hallmark Channel and made a dismal TV movie out of it. Not quite but the was, same as but the... But they paid a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, and, well, uh, at least, at least <laughs> got something out it of was, it. It was 36 years old at the time, so I said, boy, when you can sell a script that's 36 years old, it's great, but it would have been so much better with John Wayne and well, Clint Eastwood. I, I would say just about anything would be. Those, those were two <laughs> real stars. Yeah, and I mean, it, but at least it's better than sitting at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. That's for sure. Um, yeah, it's somewhere. If it might, it might get washed up on shore someday, and somebody will find it and make the picture again. Who knows? You never yeah. can tell. If you happen to be swimming and you see a script floating by, <laughs> and it it's got my name on it, and it just know, seems uh, destined for John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, I'll know exactly what. I'm looking at at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Last time, I, last time I saw Clint, I said, you remember that script? Don't you, are you sure you don't want to make it? And he <laughs> said to me, I guess I'd have to play the old guy now. Oh, that's right. He'd be the John Wayne to the to the to whatever the Clint Eastwood now it would be. Yeah, uh, so that's what he said. Uh, and that nothing happened. So anyway, it, it was finally bought by somebody, so he couldn't make it now even if he wanted to because right. I sold it. But... Uh, <laughs> 
All right. Um, number four, um, your films, as we spoke of earlier, uh, feature a lot of social commentary. Uh, with the world currently today the way it is, is there any specific social commentary that you feel isn't being addressed by film, uh, comic books, etc., in pop culture? Well, there's a lot. I mean, every time you turn around, it's it, it's funny that the films that I made and the TV shows that I wrote 40 and 50 years ago are still relevant today. I mean, the first movie that I ever directed called Bone was about racism in America. And I would have thought that uh, nearly 50 years after I made the picture that that wouldn't be an issue anymore. You'd hope, and yeah. Yet, and yet you see that same thing going on properly more virulently than it had in the past 20, 30 years. There's such a lot of uh, turmoil between blacks and whites today, and uh, it just... Uh, it's just amazing that uh, even with a black president, this is, does not seem to go away. So uh, that, that's always an issue. And in my film, Black Caesar, we had, you know, the police killing black people wantonly. And that seems to be, again, a big issue after all these years. So, you know, you write these things and uh, sure than hell, they don't go away. They keep resurfacing. Well, I think a lot of it, too, has to do with the fact that people think it goes away. Uh, and then, of course, in, in the, uh, I guess, the Internet generation where a lot of this stuff is, uh, you know, put out online and social media out, all of a sudden people think that it's this problem that's resurfaced, you know, that didn't exist for the last 30 years. But in reality, it's been going on the entire time. It's just we're now really finally starting to see it once again in, in the media because the media isn't actually controlling what we see. We're getting to see this stuff on social media and stuff like that. Yeah, well, these things lurk, lurk beneath the surface, and uh, st stuff I wrote on television years ago, even on the Defenders, uh, about a, a demagogue running for president of the United States. Uh, you know, today you hear the same stuff being uh, hurled at some of the candidates that are running for uh, president today. So it just uh, it, it just seems that everything remains relevant. Uh, and I'm very happy that I wrote these scripts because uh, they don't seem dated at all. When you look at the shows, you say, gee, this could have been written and produced yesterday. Yeah, which is actually kind of, it's its actually almost too bad that's the case. You would almost prefer them to feel dated because you're like, ah, that was, I can't believe that was ever a problem. And then it turns out, no, it's, it's just as relevant today, which is, uh, you know, a kind of testament to how not far we've come in certain regards anyway. Yeah, and uh, many of the things that I wrote back then, 50 years ago, uh, well, for example, Spielberg just made a picture called Bridge of Spies about the exchange of a Russian spy for an American. And uh, uh, I wrote the exact same show uh, on the Defenders TV show on CBS 50 years ago, only mine was better. Wow. So what can I tell you? It didn't have the production <laughs> values. And yeah. we didn't have Tom Hanks, but but the script was m much superior, and uh, and a much more compelling show. So fortunately, these shows that I wrote uh, 50 years ago are soon going to be released on DVD. After all these years, the Defenders is uh, coming on DVD from uh, Shot Factory. Uh, dot com. They're going to be putting these out, and the damn show was on the air for five years. And in those days, they used to make thirty-six episodes a year. Yeah. So can you imagine? There's nearly two hundred episodes <laughs> of the Defenders coming out. I wrote nine of them, and I think I wrote nine of the very best ones. So they'll be they'll be surfacing again for people to see, and that's what's so wonderful about having these the DVDs is that all your movies suddenly become uh, available to people. They don't have to wait for it to play at a, a revival house. Like years ago, if you wanted to see an old movie uh, that hadn't been played in years, you'd have to wait for it to show up at a revival theater. There are very few of those theaters left. And, uh, you know, to go to a film museum or something to catch a movie, it's a big deal. But now they're they're all available on, on the Internet. All you got to do is find them on the internet, punch in, and the movie's playing in your own home, and you can see the whole damn picture. So if you mention my name on Netflix uh, or one of these uh, uh, Roku stations, uh, my name pops up, my picture pops up, and there's about 20 movies of mine that you're available to see, 
at the push of a button so you can see those movies. All you got to do is say Larry Cohen. Yeah, you get to, get to reach, a, get to reach a whole new uh, generation. You get to take some of the stuff you've been proud of years ago that maybe you thought was you know lost as you, you went through or would require this kind of revival uh, theater, as you called it, uh, uh, you know, to in order for it to be appreciated, and now people get to appreciate these generations, and generations of filmmakers that otherwise could have gone unnoticed uh, or rather unremembered. Uh, that their their voices definitely are still relevant today, as you noted, especially with the social commentary and stuff. There's a lot of really good classic stuff that everybody sh- should check out that otherwise wouldn't be available were it not sure. for these new I channels. Mean, they can, they, my series branded is on DVD for available. The, my series, The Invaders is on DVD and is available every episode of the series. Uh, and some of my other series are coming on as well. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to see that your material is, is not lost, that it, that it keeps resurfacing and playing, and people can enjoy it and see it. And uh, I'm very happy with this stuff. As a matter of fact, I get a kick out of seeing some of the episodes myself because I haven't seen them <laughs> in 40 or 50 years. It's got to be a kick. Uh, well, and, and actually looking to the future, and I know this is uh, kind of an unfair question because we just barely learned about The Praying Mantis, and we asked this same unfair question to Laureen uh, uh, last time as well. Um, if The Praying Mantis, uh, your newest project, uh, was made into a film, who would you like to see cast as the lead? Oh, I don't know. Somebody like Hugh Jackman, I suppose. Or, right. a younger, or a younger Hugh Jackman. I mean, he, he's very good in the uh, in the uh, superhero films. He is, yeah. And, he's, and, he's definitely uh, a solid actor. He, he has quality. a big he's following a good, too. He's got a good range. He's not just one. Like he's not just a superhero actor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but he, yeah. you know, by the time we get it made, he might be just too old for it. But there'll be somebody else coming along who could play it. Yeah, and, from uh, from what we understand from Laureen, uh, 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 Tom Hardy is the next big thing. She can't stop gushing about that guy. So. Well, she's crazy about him, and yeah. rightly so. <laughs> yeah. if you, no, if I absolutely. The, if you saw some of the movies he made, particularly in England, yeah. uh, he's absolutely fantastic. There's one called Bronson, where he plays the most vicious criminal I've... in the in the uh, British justice system yeah. in prison, and he is absolutely mind blowing in that picture. I, I have seen that one. That was uh, that. One's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I'm. It's absolutely justified. I mean, her love for her, like I do think he's an amazing actor. So that kind of range. Yeah, so, I hey, don't think he's had a chance in a in uh, Hollywood movies to to really show what he can do. Right. But but it's, but the potential is tremendous if you see uh, him in uh, in Bronson. It's just it's it's just a uh, uh, performance that puts him in the same class as Brando. Yeah, no, he, that, that's a killer movie. He's an amazing actor. He's got a crazy amount of range. A lot of people uh, in the States especially know him from uh, the, the Mad Max stuff. But um, uh, that actually wraps up our five questions. Larry, uh, we want to say well, thanks. You can come up with a sixth question if you want to. I don't charge <laughs> any extra for that. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have anything you wished we asked you that you didn't? I mean, that's not the question, but uh, is there anything that you wished we had asked that we didn't that you would just like to riff on? No, well, you people are welcome to. Uh, uh, there's a. I have a. I have a website. Uh, Larry Cohen. Uh, 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 I guess what? What's my website address? Uh, Larry Cohen filmmaker. Okay. Filmmaker with F I L M M A K E R. Larry Cohen filmmaker dot com, on which I have uh, a number of things. I have a little, uh, short movie that we made last year in Chicago uh, called. Uh, and uh, it's a thriller. It was a, it's kind of a pilot for a TV series. It's called Delusion, and they can see it for free on Larry Cohen Filmmaker. And they they can see a couple of interviews that I've done, and they can see scenes from my my movies uh, that are on there. And uh, you know, it's it's worthwhile. And there's a book that just came out uh, called Larry Cohen: uh, uh, The Stuff of Gods and Monsters. Larry Cohen, The Stuff of Gods and Monsters, and it's available on Amazon. And it's it's a 700-page book, if you can imagine that. And uh, But it reads like a dynamite, and uh, it's, it really puts you inside the mind of a filmmaker uh, in the process of making movies. You know, many of the books about directors, 
they just say, and then I went ahead and made such and such, and then I made such and such. And they really have nothing to say about it because most movies are factory labor. The actors show up, they put on their makeup, the cameraman comes in, they shoot the scenes, and they go home, and that's it. But all my movies are an adventure. We're always going someplace crazy. We're always violating rules and regulations. We're renegades. We're uh, taking big chances. We're shooting machine guns off the top of the Chrysler building. We're uh, infiltrating the St. Patrick's Day Parade with 5,000 cops and, and shooting a gunfight with Andy Calston as the crazed cop. We're, we're, we're violating the rules of, uh, and going into the office of the Attorney General of the United States in Washington and shooting scenes from my J. Edgar Hoover movie and, uh, you know, getting away with it. I mean, we just doing crazy things on every stage of the game and it's all in the book and uh, every every shoot is an adventure of some kind so i think people would enjoy the book and it's the once again uh, larry cohen the stuff of gods and monsters there's another one out called larry cohen the radical allegories of an independent filmmaker by tony williams that's also available i guess on amazon so Anyway, I would certainly recommend these people read it if they want to uh, share the experience of what it's like to make uh, to be an independent filmmaker and something of what they would call a uh, a renegade or a, a, you know or. Yeah. I'm definitely glad you used that term, renegade. Actually, I guess the word was, maverick they use all the time. Yeah, maverick. yeah. I was I was thinking renegade, and I was thinking that you kind of were uh, the independent. Uh, uh, filmmaker, you know, all about the uh, integrity and your uh, independent and indie before indie was really even a word, actually. So, Well, I would say that when you talk about the kind of films like exploitation films or horror films, uh, the quality of writing and the quality of performances in my films are superior to the genre. I mean, I think the acting in, uh, in uh, my films is the top of the line, and the actor's often feel that they gave their very best performances for me. And I've directed great actors like James Earl Jones and, uh, you know, and, and, and other fabulous actors, even Betty Davis. So uh, uh, everything's been an exciting adventure, and if anybody wants to share it, it's all in those books. I, uh, I also had heard that there was a documentary called King Cohen that's currently in production. Uh, do you have, <laughs> they do you have been any... shooting it. They're just putting the music on, and it should be out within the next six months. And it's uh, it's quite of a wonderful film. They went all over the country, interviewed people. Martin Scorsese is in it. Uh, uh, lots of the actors that I've directed over the years are in it. A lot of filmmakers are in it who have something nice to say about me. So uh, that's really going to be worth seeing because it uh, yeah, it's very visual, and it's, and it's full of adventure. You know, to me, making a movie is an adventure, and uh, it's not just going to a studio and working in, with, uh, in a factory labor situation where you just go to work every day. It's not like that at all. Every uh, I'm in charge of the whole picture. I write, produce, direct, and supervise the editing, and uh, and uh, I, I, I'm in control of every facet of the film, which is the reason why I did it, because I couldn't stand selling the screenplays over the years and seeing them butcher the uh, product. I said, I've got to go make my own movies, or I'll have nothing to show for my career. When it's all over, I'll have nothing but disappointment. So I got to go out and make my own movies. And that's when I started doing it. And I've been doing it ever since. How fabulous. I, I, honestly, I'm very, very honored sitting here and having this discussion with you. Um, once again, I want to say thank you for being on our show. Uh, this is definitely a, a, a highlight for us. Uh, it's well, not often I, we get I to talk to a living legend. I enjoyed my little time with you, too. I enjoyed this, this conversation. You asked all the right questions and everything. So. Uh, I hope I'll meet you in person someday soon. Okay, I, I hope as well. Absolutely, we'll make that happen. For hope sure. is an are understatement. You, where are you? Are you in New York? <laughs> we're we're in Vermont, actually. But yes, oh, you're same, in Vermont. Same, same okay. vicinity. Well, yeah. Good luck up there. Yeah, and uh, I think we we shot in Peachum, Peachum, Vermont. Is that right? Huh? For which film? Well, for the picture called Return to Salem's Lot. Oh, that, really? Oh, that, that might was, make yeah, okay. That might make sense because Stephen King Peachum. made. Well, because yeah. the original Salem's Lot was uh, was Stephen King that was shot in the like, New England uh, atmosphere, of course, because of Maine. So that would make sense. 
Yeah, we wow. didn't go to Maine because we, we couldn't get the locations we wanted. We went to Vermont, and they, they gave us the town, and we shot there, and it was a vampire movie, so we were shooting all night long, and we had the, the citizens of the city all in the picture. All the kids were in the picture, too, and I got to tell you, the town was wonderful, but they did say we were really happy when you came, and we will be really happy when you leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're, yeah, we, we're certainly, actually <laughs> we certainly did disrupt their, their way of life, but uh, we made a vampire movie in their midst, and uh, it was a pretty good one, too. Well, thanks very, very much for the interview, and I'll say good night now. Uh, absolutely. Thank you very much, Larry. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.